Today, we have the pleasure of talking to two scholars of comparative literature about politics, media, and sports, and frankly, whatever else catches our fancy today. Um, so we are joined today by Dr. Sina Romani, who is host of The East is a Podcast and producer of the Red Nation podcast. Uh, the East is a Podcast is an amazing show about um, you know, colonialism, imperialism, uh, Orientalism. Uh, All good isms. Yep, a lot of isms. Um, <laughs> and I, I got to say, Cena is also one of my oldest friends. Um, true. We're not that old. We're pretty old, but we're not that old. But he's been a friend for over 20 years. Um, it's so, true. Yeah, that's, it's that's true. Wild. I walked um, by the remnants of Columbo's Pizza today, Nate. <laughs> I don't think it's been Columbo's Pizza for a very long time, but I thought of you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was by my own my old home in Toronto. Uh, we always used to think it was a front for something else, but uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, we are also joined today by Dr. Maximilian Alvarez, host of the Working People podcast, uh, one of our favorites, as we've mentioned before on this show. Uh, and actually, by the way, I should say our first repeat guest, which I consider to be a significant honor uh, on this podcast and now editor-in-chief of The Real News. Uh, and he's a former editor at The Chronicle, and we miss him at The Chronicle because he's also my favorite editor uh, to be edited by, so I miss having that. And I also consider Max to be uh, not, not a longtime friend like Cena, but a new friend, although we've never actually met each other face-to-face. -face. Hi, Max. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a, it's a real honor to be back. You guys know I love the show. I think it was really awesome and important work. And uh, if, if I haven't said it enough on social media, I'll say it uh, on here, but love Cena's work. Everyone should be listening to the East is a podcast and the Red Nation. So yeah, this is exciting. Oh, Max, you're too sweet. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have we're gonna have some fun today. I feel really confident about that. Um, so just real quick though, how are you both holding up in uh, Toronto, Cena, and uh, Baltimore, Max? Go, you go first, Max. <laughs> Well, um, it's, it's funny, like, uh, so at The Real News, like you said, I, I started this job uh, about, a, about a month ago, maybe a little less than a month ago. Uh, and as I was joking with with y'all like before we got recording uh it turns out running a news network is a lot of work <laughs> so like add to that you know the 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 kind of general awfulness and and just like kind of anxiety about the election and uh the pandemic we just uh hit a very grim milestone over 200,000 new cases yesterday so it's a uh, it's a mixed bag i guess is, what, is how i would put it um you know i was uh at the real news i was actually interviewing Viewing uh, Ben Jealous today um, for for a kind of standalone segment that we're gonna run. And I was joking with him. I was like, man, I feel like I feel like my ass is like unclenched, like maybe 10 percent from last week. So like it's something. <laughs> but but there's still there's still a lot that I'm exceedingly anxious about, um, you know, a lot that I think a lot of unresolved questions that are going to kind of be fought over and borne out in, in the coming weeks and months. So, you know, living life in America in 2020. What can I say? Oh, uh, I guess me, my turn now. Uh, oh, I'm fine. Nothing really exciting going on here. Toronto is very boring. I live a very boring humdrum life. I don't, I have the opposite problem of Max insofar as I don't have a job and I don't do very much in the days. So, which is a nice problem to have, honestly. <laughs> uh, like I, this is, I mean, this will come up, I'm sure, but I haven't, I haven't really been checked into 
let's let's put them in big fat quotes the labor market for many years now like i've been a long-term unemployed person i mean i've made money here and there but for lots of different reasons like i haven't really worked a real job and i don't plan on ever really working a real job ever again so i i have absolutely nothing to complain about to complain about during covid i mean i'm bored i'm like bored out of my fucking wits i don't see anyone it's just boring but in terms of all the horrible things that have happened across the world, like ennui is like, you know, the lowest form of, of, of shit to lament. Like it's, it's barely touched my communities. I have like a great uncle in Iran who got it, who, who passed away, unfortunately. But in terms of COVID, it's been like, a, it's been, it's been kind of just this abstraction, like a news event. And I don't know, it's weird. I think, yeah. And I also like, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. And my relationship the u.s election is is sort of is sort of it's the same like kind of comfortably numb if you want to like put a stupid boomer way of talking about it like like <laughs> like like i don't care like fuck these people like this the prison warden or the orange man like god forbid i mean yeah i mean obviously like there is a difference and we can get into that but but uh yeah just a kind of uh general not giving a fuck uh, i may that may not be true maybe i did give a fuck and i just I'm pretending. I don't know. It's like the Hill of Beans thing from Casablanca. Like, my these things don't matter. Like, it's not like there are global issues. We have like pressing things, but you know, grand scheme of things, you know, the individual lives of like some bourgeois academics are pretty humdrum in the grand scheme of things. I don't know, but um, but yeah, that's me. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, we we appreciate your candor. Always appreciate the honesty. And hey, if if boring is someone's life right now, like more power to you, right? Because I just feel like so many people, like myself included, with like doom scrolling and everything, it's just like, what's next? What's next? And so, I mean, to to kind of live like a boring life would be peaceful in some ways, I imagine. Yes, no, it's very peaceful. It's also just like I I don't have like a real job or what we would call responsibilities. <laughs> So like, I mean, I do, like I have my, I produce uh, podcasts and stuff, but like, it's all compared to my old life as an academic, I don't have any structure. Like I don't even check my email anymore. Like I check it like once a week, maybe. And like, I mean, whatever. So it's, it's like, um, I'm kind of living outside of a normal person's life, but it's, it, and that's, and that's, I'm fine during, during COVID. I'm very lucky. I consider myself very lucky that I don't have to teach at a school, but like, I don't have to like go into like, you know, deal with this shit. So anyways, that's me. We can move on past this. So I I feel like I just solved the mystery of my unanswered emails to Cena. (laughs) (laughs) What's email? Like, is that the one? Like, which one is email? (laughs) I I don't know. Well, you know, like, I guess before, like, before we get rolling though, like, you know, uh, it's funny that, that we're talking about this because it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, right? Because I think there is like really something to be said about the fact of like, you know, we're, we're in this situation, right? I mean, like, granted, there are a lot of people who are either out of work or, you know, who are forced to work in unsafe conditions. And there are also just a lot of us who are stuck at home, right? And like, you know, we acknowledge that that privilege, but, you know, it comes with a lot of its own trials as well. And, you know, I, I remember, I feel like I f- I, one thing that I always try to do, right, is I try to be as attentive as possible to like, 
changes in my sensorium, right? So if I feel like my capacity for long-term memory, right, or uh, my my ability to kind of recall things that in my 20s I used to be able to recall like better, I try to like take note of that and start to like wonder why. Granted, a lot of it mm-hmm. is probably weed, but like, you know, a fair, <laughs> amount of, <laughs> a fair amount of it is also like, you know, like uh, Joanna mentioned, like the doom scrolling thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is something I think a lot about now being kind of more embedded in like media, right? Is like, how do you make kind of substantive um, media that provides deep analysis and context in a kind of, you know, media ecosystem that has conditioned us all to have the kind of long-term memory of goldfish, right? And and like, that's, that's something that like, um, like I said, I, I feel like that process has kind of accelerated uh, during the pandemic, my sense of time, my grasp of time, my experience of time has just become so much more wishy-washy and gray and and hard to kind of place. And so that's prompted me to kind of think uh, a lot about how I experienced time uh, before this pandemic, right? And like, I came to a kind of like sad and rather grim realization where, you know, I realized that I can't remember the last time I was bored. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, as kids, this is like something that, you know, Astra Taylor has that kind of legendary lecture where she talks about how she and her siblings were like unschooled, like they didn't go to school when they were kids. They were raised very, uh, you know, like they were homeschooled, but they weren't even put on a strict syllabus. And one thing that she said that always caught my ear was like our parents let us be bored and let us kind of get out of that boredom by deciding what interested us. Right. And that's that's something that I genuinely have like nostalgia for. Right. Is that kind of experience of boredom that somewhere in my late 20s was just I feel permanent, permanently replaced by this constant sense of guilt and anxiety, right? Like the, the, Mm -hmm. the empty space of not doing anything is still there, but the experience of that empty space is no longer boredom. It's no longer a wandering of my mind or anything. It's just this kind of crushing anxious sense that there are a million things I could and should be doing. And I really miss that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's transition a little bit um, to sort of talk about the election and things like that. And so maybe let's walk through some of the basics of what happened with the election and what you thought about it. So what sorts of things surprised you both? Maybe what did not? And and maybe we could speculate a bit about what might happen next. Oh, and, and as Nathan put in, where do you stand on questions of fascism and coup? Just that. Well, I just went on like a long detour about <laughs> no, being bored. No, Max, I'll, you I'll should go over to Cena. <laughs> no, 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 Max, you should go because I, I have, I have, I have very, I have not very good like sophisticated takes about the U.S. election. It goes on forever. It's, it's all just, it's all just spectacle. It's about billions of dollars spending. But Max, you, you, you live in America. All actually, all three of you do. So you guys probably should talk about it more than I do. I mean, you know. Well, I'm going to play Sim 6. I'll change. I'm still listening. <laughs> no, I was joking. I was joking. No, I mean, you know, like you're, if you're not wrong, right? I mean, like, you know, it's hard not to kind of be crushed by, you know, just the sheer amount of resources that were dumped into this kind of 
to basically two year long, you know, event uh, that was kind of the past election season. And it's still not fucking over. Right. It's like now mm. all of our eyes are on Georgia to see what happens with the kind of congressional or Senate runoff elections. Uh, the uh, Georgia secretary of state just announced yesterday that they're going to hand audit like the presidential election votes. Uh, he says it's not because of like pressure from Republican colleagues and Donald Trump who insists that like the, the election was a fraud and are throwing a big fucking tantrum. And I don't know what anyone expected. Like, you know, like I, I, among many others was kind of constantly saying in the months before this is like, what worries me is that we don't have a plan for what is like very clearly the most likely outcome of all this, which is uh, that Donald Trump refuses to concede, right? Like, you know, and clearly the Democrats plan right now is just to pretend that that's not happening. And that's not a plan, right? Because even if, you know, at some point Donald Trump does like have an out and does like actually like physically leave the White House, right? What he and the Republicans are doing right now is continually um, casting doubt on the legitimacy of this election in a way that will benefit them as they more than likely end up in a situation where they still control the Senate and they stonewall kind of everything that the Biden administration wants to do, however little that may actually be. Then the Democrats will continue to compromise with people like Mitch McConnell, which will kind of continue the decades long trend of the Democratic Party moving farther and farther to the right. But, um, you know, we don't have to go kind of like all all headfirst into that. I mean, I guess like my my general impression about the election right now is, you know, I'm trying to, like I said, I'm, I'm meditating a lot on kind of like past experiences and trying to really center myself in past iterations of myself and my way of being in the world. And, you know, one thing kind of rabbit hole that I've been going down is trying to kind of recall the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. Right. And, you know, just like after the 2016 election, uh, what we have seen over the past week, right, is this kind of harried media frenzy to, you know, basically build these like kind of bold and often really irresponsible narratives based on like exit polling, uh, mm -hmm. which like exit polls always have an asterisk next to them, right? You know, they, they always provide a limited at best view of what happened on election day. Now you add to that the fact that this election, um, just by raw numbers is the like largest, uh, you know, number of, pe of people in America who have participated in a general election in history, right? A lot of that is just by the fact that our population has been growing every, you know, for, for decades. Right. But the point being is that, um, you know, with so many people voting with so many kind of local dynamics kind of playing out across these different States, it's just, it's, it's unceasingly baffling to me that like the mainstream media, especially right. Like, I guess in a way it's not baffling, right? They need to fill airtime. This is the fucking kind of con continual problem with corporate media, right? Is that they're always competing with each other for eyeballs and advertising revenue and the way that they do that, right? Is to kind of constantly run with the most sensationalist lead story that they can. They need to kind of take uh, these pseudo events as Daniel Borstein once called them. 
and turn them into, you know, weeks of breathless coverage about basically nothing, right? And this is like exactly the kind of shit that happened after 2016 when based on exit polls, we we started down this kind of, you know, ridiculous, uh, or not ridiculous, but just like incredibly overblown discussion about the white working class and and Trump's like working class appeal, right? And and then like as more data from the election came out, you started to see that well, actually, there's a lot of fucking like petite bourgeois assholes who like really really love what Trump you know was selling, uh, and especially like a lot of like white women in the suburbs, yada yada yada, um, and so like a lot of that white working class narrative, right, was 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 based on exit polls that gave us limited kind of data about what actually happened. It was largely focused on a few key kind of swing states. It like was completely blind to kind of like the other working class dynamics that played out across the goddamn country. And that's exactly what we're doing now, right? For the past week, what I've been seeing is kind of this breathless coverage about the, the exit polling data, which suggests that like Trump made, you know, some minor gains in, you know, the the quote unquote Latino vote and uh, the quote unquote black vote, particularly black men. And the Latino vote is particularly in, in Florida and Texas. Right. And so, like, there's just been so many kind of articles and news spots that I've watched that have kind of just blown my mind because this is just this is all this is all fucking speculation at this point, right? Like I said, like exit polls are, are already have an asterisk next to them because they give a very limited view. If you add to that the fact that this election uh, not only had like more voters than ever in history, but it also uh, included like the vast majority of those were uh, people who voted early or with mail-in ballots. And we don't have that data yet. Right. And so like the fact that we're kind of trying to kind of spin these narratives about why Trump appealed to like a certain segment of Latinos or Latinx folks in, you know, Miami Dade uh, County in Florida or one County in Texas, right. It's, it's, it's fucking nothing. It's a nothing burger right now. There will be time to kind of discuss, you know, when we have a more granular view of, of why people voted the way they did. But like the raw fact is that, you know, by and large, the Democrats still control like two thirds of like the, the quote unquote Latino vote and the Latino vote, uh, based on like kind of everything we can see right now, you know, the had the most had the biggest increase in um, kind of participation and became the second largest voting block in the country for, I think, the first time in history. Right. So there, there, there's a lot that still needs to kind of be unpacked and that won't become clear for the coming weeks. And so I guess uh, this is my long kind of rambling way of saying that, like what and I know that we're going to talk about this later, is that like by and large, I feel like the media has learned nothing from, you know, the the. 2016 election uh to say nothing of the democratic party uh or the republican party totally and so i'm, I'm gonna come i have a, i have actually questions for both of you and i um i want to bring cena in and I, and I have a question for you about the non-us perspective but but before i get to that i want to come back to you max because it, it really picks up on exactly what you've just been talking about so you're sort of saying that we have these exit polls and then they produce these narratives right the media constructs these narratives around the exit polls about different so-called communities as if we can essentialize right um huge swaths of people just because you know they're latino or whatever. Um, now, one of these that has really popped for me, and I know this is something you've thought a lot about before, um, is 
to me, what strikes me as like one of the most absurd, this idea, this kind of what I would call a false dichotomy in the kind of postmortem of the Democratic campaign between kind of anti-racism on the one hand, um, and then an argument for kind of like the material betterment of people's lives on the other. And what I really mean here is that we're hearing in some corners that overly, and this is all, you know, in scare quotes, overly woke ident so-called identity politics has alienated some voters and pushed them to Trump, i.e. <laughs> alienated the so-called white working class, right? Which is exactly what you're talking about, this notion that the white working class votes for Trump, the white working class is put off by woke politics. Um, and therefore, to counter that, we, as in like a left, um, should be advancing a project of universal material support in the form of things like Medicare for all, increased minimum wage, debt forgiveness, Green New Deal, pandemic relief, et cetera. Right? But then on the flip side, we have others who are asking why we should readily forgive white supremacy, uh, essentially, and try to suture violent wounds with the same kind of maybe mythical white working class um, who are you know, fundamentally racist, et cetera. So my question in all of this, and this is the thing that I just, I, I, I can't really wrap my head around, is essentially why not both? Is it strategically or morally deficient to advance a project that simultaneously centers anti-racism, i.e. acknowledges and challenges white supremacy, which clearly exists and shapes U.S. society, but at the same time also advocate for universal material uplift, which is clearly going to benefit all Americans, racialized and otherwise, and therefore produces a, a much more potent political movement in the future? I don't know why not both. I mean, like this is the con this is a constant source of of uh, frustration for me, I guess, to put it mildly, right? Um, you know, I think that uh, I I have increasingly little patience for the kind of quote unquote anti woke uh, takes, uh, especially those on the left, right? The one the ones that are coming from the right, I expect those. I know where they're coming from, right? They're coming from people who don't want kind of the political uh, struggles that we are calling woke to win in the first place, right? So why would they endorse, you know, this or that um, kind of brand of politics or why would they kind of support this or that slogan like defund the police or, or something like that uh, when, when they fundamentally don't want it in the first place, right? This is another thing that you know, drives me nuts about kind of the way that this all plays out in the media, right? Because right now you have like, you know, useless fuckers like John Kasich kind of getting as much airtime as he can possibly take on all the kind of major networks talking about how now it's more important than ever for the Democratic Party to uh, not go farther left, to go farther to the right, right? You know, to list, quote unquote, listen to what the other half of the country has to say. And, and, you know, I think anyone who's even mildly progressive is kind of looking around and being like, well, who the fuck have you been listening to this whole time? Right. You know, the, the Democrats have tried harder uh, to kind of suppress its own left wing than it has to kind of fight the, the most vicious and virulent strands of, you know, its right wing opponent, right. You know, outside of its own party. And, you know, just, a, a, you know, beyond that, right, the, the point that I wanted to make about John Kasich, right, that I think everyone really, really needs to understand is like, not only did John Kasich, like, as a Biden surrogate, 
do jack shit, right? You know, Trump won Ohio, at least like what it looks like, ba- like pretty much by the same margins that he won in 2016. So thanks a lot for like the great uniter and John Kasich for basically being famous for losing elections, as far as I can tell at this point, um, and being, you know, a shithole governor. Um, but I, I, I need people to understand, you know, that like when John Kasich goes on TV to kind of talk about why the Democratic Party needs to not go left, it's because John Kasich himself needs people to believe that in order to have a job, right? I mean, that is like, in one sense, it kind of, this is all incredibly simple, right? You know, the, 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 it's like the citations needed guys, Adam and Nima kind of say about, you know, spooks and CIA, you know, like affiliated or Pentagon affiliated people in DC, you know, all these right wing think tank kind of people who have ties to kind of the, the, the blob that is called, right. Who every time they are asked for an opinion, their opinion is always increase the military budget. It's because that's their job. Like their job is literally to make sure that the military budget is always increased. That doesn't mean that what they're saying is right. Right. And, and you know, the same goes for people like John Kasich. The same goes for like these milquetoast centrist Democrats who either lost in their races or had a tougher race than they anticipated because like they stand for so little that they could be knocked off their pedestal by right-wing opponents claiming that they're socialists when they're very clearly not. It's like if you're if your opponent can like sway voters against you based on, you know, this kind of it very obviously baseless smear, then maybe you're just a shitty candidate, right? You, you could actually easily fight against that um, and win the battle for the narrative, right? If you're in a contested congressional race and you are a centrist or you know just a Democrat in general and your right-wing opponents are doing what the Republicans always do, which is accuse you of being a socialist, right? If you want people to not get scared by that, there's a very easy way to get them on your side, which is have a clear record of fighting for them, right? You know, there there are a lot of candidates across the country who rewon, you know, their their elections because their candidates actually like what they're doing, right? You know, it, and the thing that kind of gets me is like that never that never seems to be the primary interest of the Democratic establishment, right? It's all a a shadow game. It's all a game of symbols and monikers. You know, like it's all branding. It's never about like what you actually substantively do for working people to actually kind of win them over and make them have faith in you, right? It's all about how you can like coax the messaging to, you know, appeal to the most people while you yourself are kind of an ineffectual, you know, uh, you know, tool for, for the establishment. But, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, that that's maybe going a little far afield from your original question, Nate, but like, you know, it's just all to say the reason I focused on that, right. Is that there's so many people participating in this kind of anti-woke, uh, discourse who have the most obvious, um, you know, conflict of interest in participating in that debate, right? Like nothing about them or their position or what they stand to gain in this debate suggests that they are actually offering substantive critiques that anyone remotely concerned with social justice, with equality, with the actual things the left should be fighting for, 
should ever listen to. Like, why why would I want to listen to John Kasich when I know that John Kasich does not have my best interest at heart? Why is this even like a part of the discussion? And as far as like kind of the left elements that are, you know, participating in this, who are getting suckered into this kind of bad faith debate about woke versus anti-woke politics. Like I said, I have increasingly little patience for that too, because what it shows me is that they don't actually think like you were describing, Nathan, that like, you know, they are, they are more convinced with kind of, you know, uh, rhetorical one upsmanship than they are with actually kind of hashing out the political necessities of our day and serving kind of the people that we are ostensibly fighting for and fighting with, right? It's as simple as that, right? People right now, including on the left, who are saying like, well, defund the police was a dumb slogan and it hurt a, it hurt the Democrats in the election and like, you know, slogans matter, yada, yada, yada. This is like, you know, wokeness gone too far. And it's like, motherfucker, do you remember what the like slogan was in response to? It was in response to kind of the constant um, unaccountable in broad daylight slaughter of black, brown, indigenous, disabled and working class people like on the regular like and we're sitting over here debating like whether or not we have packaged like our uh, kind of acknowledgement of that great injustice in a way that it will be palatable to people who aren't willing to kind of see that injustice for what it is. Right. And so, you know, you, 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 this definitely like strikes a nerve and like I there's so much about it that I want to get at, but I know there are three other people in this conversation, so I'll shut up for now. But like this all to say is that I think that so much of this is a debate that is like started in bad faith and it can only really go in that direction. There is no real reason why, you know, we cannot be fighting for economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, you know, all these things, you know, as a kind of broad left and working class based coalition for a better world, because look around you, look at look at how far back we are, like look at how much more we have to climb. And we're we're talking as if we have some sort of power and we don't. Right. You know, so like, why don't why don't people kind of shut the fuck up, do the work for a minute. Right. Join in with other people, listen to what they have to say and build from there. Right. Stop trying to kind of come up with like the perfectly crafted slogan before you actually even do any of the work to mobilize people. Yes, that, that is spectacularly well said. And honestly, like, what could be more neoliberal than focusing on the slogan over the <laughs> exactly. work or any of this, like the, the, the human, literal human sacrifice that you're describing? No, but what matters is the slogan, defund was a bad, wor bad word choice. Um, and so we all deserve fascism now. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's possibly a, ba a bad faith position. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. Um, now, Nasina, I want to bring you in here, and please, obviously, feel free to uh, weigh in on any of this we've just been talking about. But I have a, a slightly different direction I want to go in as well to bring you in on the sort of the non-U.S. perspective. And, and I should say for listeners, like we, you've kind of you even located the three of us as people in the U.S. right now. But you yourself have lived a very long portion of your life in the United States, especially in California and Los Angeles. Um, so you are. Um, even though you were kind of downplaying this, actually extremely familiar with kind of like what it's like to live in the United States from um, the position of, you know, you know, just you know, the dehumanization that everyone in this country experiences. Um, but especially, frankly, people that have uncertain immigration status uh, and so forth. So, you know, I, I would be very interested to hear that aspect. But also, here's what I want to hear about, because 
On Saturday, we saw celebrations in the streets as you know, many Democrats, centrists, even folks on the left rejoiced at what appeared to be, at least for many in that moment, the end of this Trumpist regime. Right. And I think that some very compelling arguments have been advanced that from a domestic perspective, Biden's victory is a genuine victory for many Americans from the standpoint of what Victor Ray called uh, on our last episode, harm reduction, given the actual hurt Trump has inflicted upon particularly racialized people in the country, um, something that was presumably only likely to further escalate um, in a prolonged regime. Right. Um, I think, too, though, that uh, despite debate among those more expert than I, a compelling case can be advanced that this country under Trump has been plunging increasingly into the realm of fascism. Now, again, I know this is a big debate right now, especially from people on the left over whether we should call this fascism or not. I am not an expert in the history of fascism, so like, it seems a bit semantic to me. Um, But all this said, I'm not sure that all of these arguments look the same from outside of U.S. borders, given the kind of imperial role of this country and the harm that it has persistently inflicted throughout its history, uh, regardless of which party sits in the White House. Could you perhaps speak to how some, and just basically you, um, sitting outside the country are viewing the celebratory tenor of this apparent, perhaps, Biden win? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I mean, there's like, um, I mean, okay, like, there is this kind of nihilist response to me that that says like, look, like the let like we can people are going to have a kind of effective response to Trump because that's what he was good at. Like he was good at he was good at getting you to love him or good at getting you to hate him. And uh, whereas most politicians deserve or barely solicit any more than your apathy right with the exception of with with the exception of our of of uh of obama which was a different story but we can talk about that later but in a sense like these especially american politicians these are all ghouls like these are objectively bad people who are guilty of crimes who are you know just you know like they're just a hundred thousand epsteins running around like just in suits and you know uh, if not literal, then figurative in terms of how they just suck up human lives and destroy people. So the the, the spectacle of U.S. politics is is uh, you know just flat out absurd and circus like. And I always felt that way when I lived there. I lived there as a foreigner the entire time. I never until like I think my I think I was like a postdoc, and then I learned what Congress was, and I was like, oh, Congress is both of them. Like it's Senate and it's like, cause I barely understood civics and as a Canadian, like I didn't like there's parliament or some shit. Like I'm not an election. I voted once in my life and it was for like a communist. Uh, and you know, and it's, and it's just, and it's just a nihilism, apathy, whatever. And like, we don't have to talk about electoralism. I don't want to talk about electoralism, but like it, to me, it's um, like, I was a visa student in the U S so I never had any ability to, to vote anyways. And I remember I had I had a very liberal girlfriend who was like, you know, a kind of Daily Coast reading um, sort of left liberal attorney, a wonderful human being. I adore her still, even though she probably will never speak to me again for the rest of my life. But that's neither here nor there. But like we had this fight over the reelection of Obama because I just couldn't care. Right. And she got so mad one day that she's like, well, excuse me for caring about democracy. And I was like, what 
in the flying fuck are you talking about? You're telling me that this like circus act of which drone guy are you going to pick? The drone guy who's from this party or the other drone guy? And which one are you going to pick? Like, you're telling me that this is the rule of the people. Like, like it's not... Like, I knew that critically she understood, she agreed. She's like, yes. But it was about... And, and actually, it's, it's apt that we're on this podcast. It was spectacle, right? It was the specter of competition, right? Like, this is liberalism's, like, most sacred ceremony where the rational, enlightened subject of modernity who, armed with the knowledge they critically cultivated from the public sphere, walks into, you know, the fucking public, the, the, the institutionalized house of casting your vote and pushing something and the voice of the people and all this horse shit about this and that. And like, like, we're all adults here. Like, we know what elections are. Like, they're farts, right? Like, we know that, like, the ghouls who represent these things are ghouls. And, like, in the U.S., there's two right-wing parties who jockey for position, who represent different interests and are funded by different sort of external and internal forces. And it's kind of complicated. The tectonics are interesting to people who live there, maybe in the sense that, like, I'm saying, like, you know, the, and the analytical tectonics, right? So, like, you know, the 538s of the thing. That stuff is, it's no accident that, like, 538 came out of sports. Right. Because like that same thinking is like politics in some sense is supposed to be this kind of pure competition. Right. The way that some like some sports are supposed to be sort of, you know, the pure competition. Right. It's like it's like embodiment of market. Right. Like who is who is stronger. Right. Like, I mean, we can get all to that because that relates to baseball. Right. Like what happened to baseball and throughout all of this. But the, the long way of answering your like the short way of answering your question is that the U.S. empire is different than the internal organization. That for a long time, that those the internal organization of the U.S. and its different policies and its agendas and the various ways. Now those things interact, right? Case in point, Trump was the absolute lapdog of the hardcore hyper-Zionist lobby of the freedom, the the foundation for the defense of democracy, which is basically just Sheldon Adelson and the Likud party and Netanyahu, and they've been the one putting the screws to Iran. They were the ones who pushed for the assassination of Soleimani and um, and uh, the Iraqi general Abu Mahandis. And, and that is like, this has been that they've had these four years to torture the region with what the U.S. is capable of doing, which is sanctions, you know, saber rattling, drone strikes, um, what, what in the sort of ghoulish, you know, think tank world they call crisis initiation, right? Uh, I mean... And they sent their pit bull, Elliot Abrams, out after Trump lost. They sent him to, to go visit with the other bloodless ghoul lizards in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and in Israel, too. Like, all just, you know, the horrible human beings that are like a blight on our, on our humanity, on our, on our planet. You know, those are the people in the White House. So if you're going to rejoice, like, go ahead, like, rejoice. But, like, the U.S. empire is different than the jockeying for power that takes place seemingly permanently in the US if you if you sort of combine the different layers of the election cycle because there's just so many elections and like everything in the US it's just another industry right so like there's like a whole there's a whole apparatus of of packs and whatever and I don't even fucking know but like 
from the analytical side, there's also like all these institutional actors. Most of them are just kind of feckless libs who take for granted these things that like, oh, America's a fair country and this and that. And it's mostly just childish people who can't talk about serious things, I find. Like you listen to the Nate Silvers of the world and it's just it's just math. Like it's just math. Like it's not there's no actual like hashing out of issues. Like say what you will about academia and all of its crimes. But like at the very least, I I I got from it like a sense of like you know research and critical thinking and and like you know the basics of kind of what you know what could be called scientific method. Like you ask a question, you see who else has asked that before, you debate the parameters of that question, and then you try to answer it. And then when you inevitably fail, like most things, to answer it properly, you like extrapolate from that and be like, where did I go wrong? But like these fuckers in like the normie world. They talk about politics as if it's like some like, you know, like it's like coffee grinds, like reading them. And it's like, this is you people are idiots. Like you people are morons who who don't really have a grasp on like the, the structures and the institutions and the forces that shape our political lives. Now, can you have a grasp realistically? No. And that's on designed on purpose. I think that modern political states and the kind of you know, biopolitical order that have grown around it and like multinational capital, they they stack, they stack, they stack things in front of us so that we can't see kind of the global machinations of things. But like if you take a step back and you look at the situation, what happens is that the US is declining very rapidly, that the Trump years brought with them an incredible, incredibly they they did everything wrong that their previous administrations had done that Obama had done over eight years, that Bush had done over eight years, which was ratchet up tensions, increase warmongering, but reduce war somehow. Like that's not, I know that sounds kind of different. I mean, and and I'm also kind of collapsing a lot of things, but essentially how the U.S. empire runs itself and kind of how its history unfolds is largely, I think, beyond the purview of the president. Now, thanks to actually Obama, Mr. Democracy in Chief, like Abu Democracy, if we want to call him that, he actually is a he actually is a big reason why we have all the like the presidents have the powers they do. That since Bush, I think, or maybe even Clinton, that increasing amounts of power and smarter people know this more than I do, like who pay attention. But essentially, like the executive branch has more and more power, and that includes God knows, like having you know Dick Cheney's you know secret you know, military forces across Eastern Europe that were funded by God knows what. And like, like we will never know what fucked up things the U.S. empire does to the world, has done, continues to do, will do. Like, we might get a taste of it 60 years down the line if, you know, if it's not Mad Max future. Uh, like, like that's like that to me is like the big issue. And like, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, this is, this is like, this is, it's not deck chairs on the Titanic per se, but it's a little deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, It's a little, it's a little late for America. Like the sclerotic, like the sclerotic relationship between capital and politics and the absolute, just almost like almost gleeful disregard for American life. Right. Like 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 they brought the empire home in a sense. COVID exposed how the U.S. treats its own 
citizens. Now, of course, I lived in the U.S. for over a decade. I very much know how the U.S. treats its own citizens and its non-citizens alike, depending on the context. And in an answer, it could be really bad. It's often really bad, right? So, like, that's not something that, especially I'm comparing it to, like, neoliberal Canada, this hyper-rich country that has a lot of oil wealth, and natural resources that it can easily tap, and whatever. Like, it's different than the U.S. The U.S. is this different beast, and, you know, this coastal thing that happens, this money that's centered in these extreme pockets of the country, and then huge, empty, vast, you know, pockets of, you know, people call it flyover country as, you know, and they say it earnestly as if to say that, like, this is not worthy of, like, our attention, right? And it's like a big, oh, and of course, one of the cycles after the U.S. election is, oh, do we do a good job representing the unrepresented? And it's always just the same thing. And I agree with mostly what what, what Max said in terms of, like, they've learned nothing. And, you know, they've learned nothing from 2016. And they never will. And Democrats like to lose. That's like their kink. And like, and and nothing will happen in the U.S. without more uprisings, like period. Nothing will happen in terms of actual sort of dislodging. I mean, they try to sell us AOC, but we know that 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 didn't turn out so nice. You know, like that turned out to be like the more I think about it now, the more I realize like her popularity was kind of astroturf. Like there was a very effective messaging to use that horrible gerund uh, around her that was deep, extremely well made. And now the people who actually did it now have a whole network on their own, right? Means TV, I think. I think that's them, right? Uh, Max, you probably know that. Yep. Yeah, that's them. So like this is this is media. This is power. This is capital. All these things. And so. You know, the individual actor is okay, fine. Okay, the the, the, the banking guy, the, the senile banking guy who's pretty hazy-eyed. Yeah, he won, I mean, by by sort of a lot, I guess. I don't know. But it's 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 all, uh, the U.S. empire is, dec- like, Trump's speech is, like, hastened something that was unfolding, that was already unfolding, that will continue to unfold under Biden. What Biden will do vis-a-vis Iran will be interesting. Because this is about rescuing Obama's legacy, I imagine. I might not have something to do with it. God knows he wrote on Obama's legacy into the fucking White House. So he might as well fucking massa- keep massaging that fucking golden calf. Uh, did I make some next metaphor there? I probably did. I don't know. So anyways, that's enough for me. <laughs> well, thanks so much for that. So we definitely have some thoughts, but I want to send it to Max to see if he had um, any kind of response to what Cena said or the question that we asked him. Yeah, um, definitely. So, um, you know, I, I, I just didn't want to kind of um, move on. Um, this is all such a great and rich discussion, but I but I know that y'all were asking about the fascism stuff, and I realized... Oh, shit, that, that was the fascism. Oh, fuck, well, yeah. Well, no, I mean, like, so this is the great thing, is, like, I feel like we are talking about it, right? Because my answer mm-hmm. very much just builds from what Cena was just saying, right? Is, like, I know that right now, you know, there is, like, kind of a renewed interest in kind of left-wing circles uh about debating you know whether or not kind of the the fascism threat was actually credible during the trump years right and whether or not kind of mentioning the f word you know is is even productive and or or accurate right and i guess like one thing that i wanted to kind of stress is like 
we've already had this debate. We've had it basically since the the moment Trump, you know, like kind of took office, right? He's like, I remember, you know, what, two, three years ago, I wrote this really long piece arguing with like, at that time, I was arguing against like Freddie DeBoer and Angela Nagel, who were making this very same argument, right? And like, you know, they, among others on the you know, supposedly on the left, were more or less kind of accusing um, those of us who considered ourselves anti-fascist or those of us who, you know, took this kind of fascist threat uh, very seriously. They were accusing us of kind of being very nearsighted and just focusing on kind of, you know, like some sensational far-right neo-Nazi groups who were very, in, in large by and large, they were very marginal in the political landscape. Like they were just kind of these extreme, you know, radical pockets of, you know, right wing racism and what have you. And, you know, my rebuttal to those kinds of arguments then is pretty much the same as my rebuttal now. It's like, no, you know, in fact, this is like a much longer kind of historical view that, you know, is leading me to kind of identify um, these elements as kind of fascist or fascistic. um, And, placing them within a much broader kind of political context, right? And I I say that because, like, to me, a lot of the debate that I've been hearing this week about whether or not, like, kind of the the fascism is even an appropriate term to bring up, or if it ever was during the Trump years, right, this this feels to me like the left-wing version of, you know, calling Trump himself uh, an aberration, right? This is this is just what the liberals keep saying, right? They keep saying that, like, well, you know, Trump was this kind of, you know, ab- aberrant, you know, kind of awful candidate who, like, kind of emerged out of this weird moment, but now we're kind of back on track and things are going to get back to normal. It's like, no, like Donald Trump, you know, was able to like beat out an incredibly packed field of other Republicans, traditional Republicans, because people do not want traditional Republicans anymore because the type of authoritarian, you know, rhetoric uh, and, and values that Trump embodied appeal to people. And there are reasons, there are material reasons why, you know, those that type of authoritarianism, that type of fascist light and, and increasingly, uh, you know, not light, you know, fascism that that Trump has has flirted with throughout his presidency and that, you know, the the Republican Party has essentially endorsed. Right. That's not that's not an aberration. And it didn't come from nowhere like that can that comes from, as Cena said, kind of American decline. Right. That Trump has always been a symptom of American decline. Right. I had I had, um, you know, the great uh, labor writer at in these times, Hamilton Nolan, on my show, Working People a couple weeks ago. And this is exactly what we talked about. That was a very about. good episode. Thanks, brother. I mean, I think I it think was. That, I heard it, too. Yes. Well, I think Hamilton was spot on, right? When, when he was like, he's like, I think that Trump is what you get when, you know, you have 50 years of unchecked capitalism, right? And like what we kind of what he meant by that and what I interpreted by that, right, is that, you know, I very much, you know, subscribe to and and listen to very seriously, right? The kind of the analysis of one of my like mentors at the University of Michigan, Jeff Ely, who is a historian of Nazism, who's a, I mean, just a brilliant historian and incredibly accomplished historian all around, right? You know, he's one of like the guys that you go to when you want to talk about fascism, right? And like, 
he never minced words when I would ask him over the past four years if like he thought this was like a credible thing. And he said, of course it is. He mm -hmm. said that, you know, like the people who are saying that it can't be fascism because the historical conditions that we're living in are not the same as the historical conditions after World War One. Like that means nothing. Like every time I hear someone say that, I'm like, yeah, no shit. Like that's like saying like X is not Y. Like no point in history is the same as any other point in history. Like that's not how it works. That that you know that's a point that sounds smart that actually means like very little, right? I get what you know people are trying to kind of get at there. And I think that we can have a productive discussion about what sorts of like uh, kind of drastic sorts of changes in, you know, national attitudes or economics, um, you know, may in fact kind of create the conditions for fascism to kind of uh, foment. But what Jeff Ely says that I take very seriously, right, is like, it's not about replicating the, like some sort of like, uh, uh, recipe for creating fascism, you know, out of the historical soup, right? It's about what sorts of conditions lead people to find fascist politics increasingly attractive, right? If we, if, if people want to say that, like, that is not the phenomenon that we have seen over the past four years, I don't know where the fuck they've been living, right? You know, we have seen, you know, people's increasing kind of embrace of this authoritarianism. We have seen the Republican Party go farther and farther down this road as the Democratic Party continues to enable them in doing so. And this is the thing about, like, saying, like, me saying that, like, this is kind of, for for leftists to kind of wave this away and saying that the fascism stuff was always overblown, the reason I say that that's the left wing version of calling Trump an aberration is because you need to look at the larger kind of political context. Where the hell do you think we're going for the rest of this century? Right, Trump was very much just a preview of the type of politics that are going to be increasingly popular and attractive to people if we do not give them material sustenance. If we do not provide or do if we do not do anything about the kind of in ridiculous inequality that we just live with and accept on a day-to-day -day basis like the bow will break and it's also going to break under the pressure of things like climate change of a shifting kind of international you know chessboard um, as the climate gets worse the harried race for resources is going to become like uh, worse and there are going to be more climate refugees and you're going to see accelerated versions of what Trump was trying to do, right? Which is what Jeff Ely calls a politics of gatedness, a politics that recognizes that the U.S. has largely participated in destroying the fucking world. And so now our political prerogative is to essentially like put a gate around our country um, and determine who is and isn't worthy of like the remaining resources that we've managed to hoard over the years. Like that is where we are headed. And if you want to tell me that like now that we've got Trump in office, this kind of fascist threat that emerges when, you know, people have lost faith in like any semblance of democratic uh, institutions, when inequality is so rife, when, you know, gatedness is the kind of, um, political paradigm of the 21st century, if you want to try to convince me that like that is not uh, conducive to kind of um, fascist like politics growing and, and accelerating and being attractive to people, I, I genuinely don't agree with you. I don't I question that analysis. I don't think that it's fundamentally sound.
I actually have a better answer to that. And it's, I'm glad you asked this, Nate, because I, I find that a lot of, like, you have to sort of begin with a kind of a level playing ground, right? So a lot of the discourse around these words like fascism, authoritarianism, blah, 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 that they come heavily loaded with a lot of sort of, like, like it's like a preloaded operating system of, like, Western liberalism that, like, we use this bar of something called democracy, of liberal sort of parliamentary democracy as some kind of apex of social development, right? Like Kantian, what did he call it? Ewigen Freiheit, like um, uh, eternal peace or whatever, like eternal freedom. Like it's, this is this is the liberal sort of like, you know, fantasy that we've reached this point that the EU, I mean, in some kind of liberal brain, I mean, I don't think actually anybody in the world believes this, but like sort of European parliament is some kind of like global model for the UN, you know, as or sort of global model of governance or blah, blah, blah. Right? I don't know. That's just all bullshit. But like, you have to sort of think of like, what is a state? Okay. A state is like the, the Weberian sort of definition, right? It's the entity that holds a monopoly on violence, right? That has legitimate, the tools of violence can use it against individuals, right? Like, this is this is like the like what kind of metaphor? Like it's it's beyond just kind of like the cement or like foundation. Like it's beyond that. Like they, this is like the air, like the sort of juridical air we breathe. That the state has a right to thump you if you like step out of line, right? Like that. This is like the cornerstone of law, right? Like this is this is this is like in the DNA of politics for centuries. Of like, oh, what does it mean to Attack, like sort of criminalize a human a human person against a set of laws right that are determined by some authority like like so and so the relationship to that you can't just presume that like the system that like instead the systems that have been kind of normalized to us of sort of liberal democracies that kind of have these rotating elections but who otherwise dominated by the same class interests for centuries, right? Built upon, in most cases, white, white supremacy vis-a-vis -vis direct white supremacy in Europe, or or like inherited, whatever you want to call it. I don't know why I call it that, but like sort of always already white supremacy or sort of racial supremacy in or settler colonialism, right? Which was fixated around, you know, in this relationship between whiteness on the one hand and blackness on the other, right? And the kind of the different ways that those kind of um, psychic and sort of psychosocial understandings of the world filtered into each other that like imperialism is fascism, like written across the globe, right? Like, like that's, that's fascism incorporated into the, like the history of human life for like 500 years. So to me, I never really like every state is a police state. You know, I know that sounds juvenile, but like, you know, when we talk about like, oh, Syria is this authoritarian country. Listen, how many people does the U.S. have in prison? Like, why can't we like be as mature people and be like, wow, that's pretty authoritarian too. But it makes sense to us. It's a system that works for quote unquote most people, right? And it's impossible for us to imagine that like, Things that seem foreign to us. So, for instance, you know, this sort of 50-year-long rule of essentially one family, which is, you know, 
it's not a pretty thing. It's not a beautiful thing. But to assume that like the rotating chairs between Democrats and Republicans is somehow superior to this, that like that there's any sort of moral equivalent, that sort of moral superiority. Like this is the thing that bugs me of like when we in the left, for instance, debate like, oh, let's debate a country X and its revolution. Right. Is it valid? Should we support it? Motherfucker, who cares what some assholes in fucking Pennsylvania or in L.A. say about things halfway across the world? Who the fuck cares? It only matters to us. Right. It's about our little discourse world and the circle jerks and the like different relationships that come out. It doesn't have any effect over there. What it usually is is that there's kind of astroturf media like that then is shoved into our brains, which when we, we feed on like pigs in a fucking trough. And then we barf it all over each other. And like, this is called the discords. Like, like that's, that's like, that's the level of engagement we have with the world. And on top of that, on top of that, you have an extremely provincial media class that does not realize it is as stupid and provincial as it really is. That presumes to have this kind of worldly understanding of this conflict or that conflict. But you take a look at their work, you scratch them a little bit. And like, objectively speaking, Mehdi Hassan is a Redditor, okay? He is a Redditor. He has Reddit brain. He has like a contrarian, like juvenile, brings up whatever random thing he read last. And like, he's good at kind of two-stepping in front of, you know, like hated foreign ministers. But like, actually things of substance aren't entertaining. Talking about shit is not entertaining. It's work. Like learning about like like the war in Yemen is not fun, right? It's not entertaining. It's not good for ratings. It's not something that people want to do the way that say they want to watch, you know, pushback with, I'm uh, not pushback. My God, I love to watch pushback. Pushback is with a friend of mine, Aaron Mate. But I thought, what was his show called? Hard Talk was a stupid fucking thing he was called. They all sound the same. They all sound like, you know, um, they all sound like pillow brands for like brands for, like um, like uh, hemorrhoid pillows, like they're all kind of like, like it's hard something, and it's like they all are just fungible. And like this is what we take, this is what we're fed as as kind of nourishment for about the world and representations, and it's all just so terrible. And so the fascism thing I thought was just more American navel gazing about words and their meanings. That like like you need to grow up that for a lot of people, for millions, tens of millions of people, indigenous people first, then African-Americans much sooner or later. And then and, and people in the global South or migrants who later came up to, because of the capital flight over this and, and also their own colonization stories, right? That like the story of the world is one of overlapping fascism that like mm-hmm. you can't separate imperialism from like the thing called the Nazi machine. And actually Part of the huge problem we have in our discourse is the singular obsession, Anglo-American obsession with Nazis and Nazism mm-hmm. and World War II as this paradigmatic conflict. Eat my balls, motherfucker. Do you know how many people the Brits killed in South Asia alone? I mean, this is yeah. a genocidal empire that eradicated huge populations of the earth. And we sit there and we're fed the crown, okay? Like, we're the problem. Our culture is the problem, right? Like, and yet so much of our discourse, our foreign policy discourse, for instance, becomes like, is country X bad? 
debate and all the monkeys get in and they're throwing their bananas and masturbating and like literally <laughs> and it's all just and it's the stupidest shit in the world and nobody else fucking talks and it's all just rim job after rim job of whatever astroturf bullshit is fed to us that week by whatever fucking ghoul is 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 on the top of the shitter that of of that in that epoch, right? So we're still fed bullshit about the white fucking helmets. If you get mad at that, if you're like angry about me, like I'm sorry, go and like go and find research. Like 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 stuff like that. Like go and Google the white helmets and like that's something that was fed to us to like help sell what was essentially a proxy war in Syria funded by external actors. Like that's one example, right? But what happens is in our disease discourse, that turns into, oh, you are supporting the government of this fascist dictator, right? It doesn't, like, the dishonesty of this move is profoundly, profoundly orientalist. It has so many layers of wrong, like, overlapping with it. And, like, just, like, people disconnected from their own realities that, like, we live in a society where people freeze on the streets, like, daily. Like, that is, like, that is like, uh, that we are failed like states, right? But like, that doesn't register for us as a problem. That's normal, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, the feeling that like we have the right to determine what's normal for other countries. I mean, this is this is a lot of what I push back up against. And what in in the end drove me, I think, in some ways, a little bit insane every day. Like, I still do the doom scrolling, but like, so little matters coming out of most of the people tweeting. Like, I'll take your like. 100 follower like weirdo marxist leninist with like a anime avatar like those people give me more nourishment because they read books and they like reproduce them and they show their sources than than 99% of like your blue check normies like those people are vacuous dolls and we're held hostage by their water cooler gossip like that's <laughs> that's like 75% of american like news media okay, so I just, like uh, <laughs> so like I I uh just like that was a fucking uh hell of a rant, my man. And <laughs> I just I just wanted to say like because I feel like I wouldn't be doing my actual job um if I didn't say this, right? But like it's it's amazing we're having this conversation because like in the past like couple weeks at the real news, like if people want to kind of like really put some faces to what uh Cena was describing right we have this amazing show called rattling the bars by uh that's hosted by Eddie Conway uh you know who is a former black panther and political prisoner legendary prison, prison abolitionist here in Baltimore and he hosts his own show focused on kind of prison and prison abolition stuff and so he just had it like a two part series based on like basically it's like 40 years after this educational outreach program that he helped put on while he was uh, on the inside right and it was a program that talked about things like imperialism and fascism and uh what he did was he found two of the other guys who like participated in that prison uh, education outreach program 40 years ago and and he interviewed them again and so you see these old clips of them talking about what we're talking about now, like one of the titles of the episodes is the U S has been moving toward fascism since Goldwater. And the other one is Bruce Franklin 40 years ago, quote, American empire is coming undone. Right. And then uh, the Mark Steiner show, which just launched its kind of new, um, 
uh, just launched, relaunched uh, this week. The very first episode like features an interview with Mark and Dr. Nikki Taylor and Dr. Gerald Horn, where they talk about, you know, the fact that when it happens to black and indigenous people in this country, we don't call it fascism. Right. And so they talk about the history of indigenous and black kind of anti-fascism in this country that goes back Mm -hmm. decades and even centuries. And so I just like, you know, it really, really, yeah, wanted to kind of, um, give a high five to Cena because I thought that was like incredibly well put, but also just like there are a lot of other kind of places out there that are, you know, including the real news, not only great podcasts, like the one that we're all currently on, but like, we don't, we don't have to kind of take all this debate as gospel, right? There are like way, there are so many other kind of perspectives that are being kind of voiced here, uh, that we don't have to be held captive by that kind of, uh, blue check, uh, mafia that, that Cena was talking about. Yeah. And I just thank you so much for that. I have a couple sort of thoughts to add to what both of you said. And and I guess to kind of go back to this initial, the, the initial part of the question, which is sort of about the international response. And I totally agree with, with all of you that the U.S., how do I say, what the U.S. does doesn't mean anything, right? That there are huge limits on what happens in the U.S. because of our crumbling empire, which whether it was, you know, when, when it's been crumbling and how long it's actually been falling is a different issue, but like I had so many international friends that like checked in with with my husband and I during the election week, like so like really like really worried and re- then really happy when Biden won. And even though it doesn't actually seem to impact their lives, and even though they don't understand the nuances of the election at all, like they literally do not get that Biden is like milk toast, that he's not going to do anything that we want, that you know that he is not actually looking out for like everyday people's lives. Like they do not get that. But to them, the idea that like the U.S. would not elect Trump again to them was such a huge symbol. And like I have friends living in Hungary and other places who have rulers that are, you know, encroaching on their freedoms, much like all of us probably have people living in these areas who are really looking for sort of a sign that like authoritarianism, fascism, whatever is not taking over the world. Um, again, how much it actually means, like in terms of influencing the domestic politics of their countries, I don't know. But I did find that really striking how many people were sort of holding their breath in other places because they think that it matters, which and maybe that's a product of sort of like media. It probably is. It's obviously a product of like really since Cold War propaganda of like us telling the world that we matter, that we're going to sort of decide the fate of the world, right? It's it's all connected to part of that. But I just found that really striking. And I guess I don't want to like negate that people around the world do feel that, even though they do not understand actually what's going on. They don't understand the sort of limitedness of what actually happened with the election. So I just kind of wanted to to put that in there because I was really surprised with how many people checked in because my thinking was like, I can't believe that we have Biden. I can't believe that's who we have right now. Like once it became clear and I was like happy on Saturday that like that, that it looked like Biden was winning and that all the stuff and I live in Pennsylvania. So I was like happy to see those election results finally come in. But it still is like this crushing feeling that we're all talking about of like, well, it's not really it doesn't actually mean anything. Well, um, but I just kind of found that striking. 
Well, I think, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm really glad that you brought this point up, Joanna, because like, I, I guess I did want to kind of stress for, for listeners here that like, in one sense, it matters a whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, yeah, I mean, I, I have, you know, friends and family in like, you know, Mexico, right? Who were like very, yeah. very fucking happy that, that, you know, Trump got voted out. And like, I think that, you know, I guess... I mean, I'm in the company of friends and fellow humanists here, so I don't have to feel like I uh, like I should apologize for this. But like, you know, I, I think that people are in some in one sense, like very justified in feeling that way. And they should allow themselves to feel that way because this country this world, you know, especially, but like, you know, in this pandemic and uh, during the Trump presidency and during the kind of, um, you know, uprisings that we saw over this past summer, we have been through a lot, right? It has mm-hmm. been a constant and a drain on our souls and on our faith in each other, right? And like that counts that, that 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 counts for a whole hell of a lot, not just in how you kind of live your daily life and whether or not you feel like, you know, like this is a world you even want to live in. Right. But it also feeds into what we were talking about earlier, right, about how, where the conditions for fascism come from. Right. They come mm-hmm. from people uh, being more attracted to that type of authoritarianism. They come from people being less attracted to having any sense of um, maximalist universal solidarity with their neighbors and their co-workers, right? What we have seen and and been a part of over the past four years, right, is uh, in essence, right, this kind of crisis of faith in our neighbors for voting for this man, right? Mm-hmm. For for endorsing this hell, right? Even if, like, as we've been talking about for the past hour, right, there are a whole lot of nuances that are missed there, right? As far as a lot of people see it and understand it and think about it, right? I feel like that's a real kind of thing that that really weighs on you after, you know, days, months, and years of this shit, right? And I think that at least my read on on what a lot of people saw, especially people who know that like the you know American imperialist war machine is is not going to go away uh, under a Biden uh, presidency, far from it. But what they saw, you know, and and what they a lot of them have communicated to me is like at least a renewed faith that people that the millions of people who came out to vote said no to this, right? That they Mm -hmm. said that they don't want this, that they expressed some semblance of power that they had to stop this. And I, and I don't want to discount that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it can be, and right. It's not either, or it's sort of like all these things. Like it can be incredibly disappointing or even just like, well, more of the same, right? This is sort of American history. This is our political cult and social culture. And then it can also be for at the same time, you know, like, oh, like now we have, I don't know, now some people can be happy that maybe they don't necessarily have to fear for their lives in the same way that they did before. Um, Yeah, I just, I just kind of thought that was interesting. Um, And and so we've started talking a bit about the media already, um, but we want to kind of focus a little bit more um, directly on it. Um, So what role would you both say that the mainstream media is playing in this moment? And sort of to what extent are there left modes of alternative media making or maybe even capable of making of substantial intervention? And we ask this knowing full well, uh, Mass, especially this is what you do. <laughs> well, um, you know, I guess in that respect, um, you know, because I don't want to, I don't want to like, 
I, I, one of like the main kind of points that I've been stressing from the very beginning. And when I say that, I say the beginning of like my media career, right, which is was as a freelance writer, uh, and eventually as a columnist for like the baffler, uh, and then eventually a podcaster, and then eventually an editor and then an editor in chief, right? It's been a been a long and winding road. But I never, ever, ever want to lose touch with you know, my roots, right, which is the kind of independent left media uh, community and ecosystem that, you know, allows us to kind of uh, approach media making um, in a more collaborative way, or it should, it doesn't always do that, right? A lot of left media folks still very much think like capitalists. Um, and that's, and that's a bummer. But, you know, I think that, you know, what I what I saw, you know, from a lot of left media outlets, Right. That I thought was very encouraging. Right. Was conversations like this. Right. Conversations where we realize that, you know, wh- one thing that I've been stressing, like uh, since I, I took the job at, at the, the Real News. Right. Is that when you are not kind of bound by the capitalist motivations that corporate media are by nature, right? By their very structure, they're forced into kind of building uh, basically a sustainable um, profit model that has kind of a journalism industry attached to it, right? And and we've seen like kind of why that was always a problem, right? Once the internet kind of really came around and Web 2.0 took off, you know, the news industry has been in decline because it has no way to kind of you know, address the fact that for over a century, it pegged itself to this kind of advertising model. And the people doing the advertisements, they don't give a shit if like they're making their money through news or through some other medium, right? And so once they realized that they were getting diminishing returns from newspapers, they started pulling out and newspapers kind of budgets have been shrinking uh, and returns have been shrinking for years, right? But once you were kind of broken out of that kind of capitalist mind of approach of how you approach media making and how you approach the question of journalism, right, you can start to like focus that journalistic kind of lens on on other things, right? You could start using media for other ends, right? Besides kind of like capturing people's attention and conditioning your audience to become, you know, not active engagers in like society, but like just kind of spectators and idle consumers uh, who, who are predictable. Right. Um, and so this is this is like one of the things that really gives me hope about um, kind of progressive left independent media is that I actually think like, you know, whether it be at the real news, whether it be at our respective independent podcasts, but also, you know, great magazines like in these times, current affairs, Jacobin, what have you like there, there, there's so many outlets that like, you know, very, you know, I, I have varying kind of political affiliations with, but I think that one of the aspects that encourages me that connects all of them Right. Is that, you know, in in many of those outlets, in many different ways, what I have seen is like people trying to actually fulfill the original democratic promise of a free press. Right. And what I mean by that is like 
you know, the, the, the free press was, was never meant to just kind of be a, a medium that informed people, quote unquote, right? That's what we always hear is that news, the news is there to keep people informed. It's like, no, keeping, keeping you informed is like, is not an end in itself, right? If you go back to like, you know, kind of the, the, the quote unquote founding fathers, right? And what the reason that they understood a free press was so vital to a democracy is because like that free press needed to give people the information that they needed in order to act more effectively in their world, in order to be better guardians and stewards of democracy itself, right? That's And that that kind of uh, medium wasn't controlled by the government that should be run by the people, right? And like, you know, that that's, a I think, a very noble goal, however far we may have strayed from it. But it's also a goal that is like anathema to the capitalist model of corporate media, right? And it's a goal that we are, in fact, much better positioned to fulfill, right? We are in a position to actually, you know, give people um, news and analysis and and provide the voices and commentary um, and context behind the kind of fast-paced sensationalist headlines, right? Stuff that actually engages people. Uh, and and addresses them not just as idle consumers, but as active participants in the world of which we are all a part, right? Active shapers of that world, right? And 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 gives um, people information that they can actually do something with. That actually reminds them that they have a stake in shaping the world that they're a part of, right? That they're not just kind of reading the the timeline or scrolling headlines or watching kind of cable news and kind of bearing witness to the the. Of the world burning with like 3D glasses on. Like well, that's not what a free press is meant to do. Free press is meant to kind of engage people in the democratic process, make them feel a greater connection to, you know, the world that they're a part of. And I've seen very encouraging signs in that, like in the independent media sphere. And and so I, I given the fact that the past hour, you know, we've been talking about some heavy stuff, I did kind of want to like you know, make that more of a, of a positive note that we can all better fulfill the like core original democratic promise of media of, of, of news media, uh, than corporate media ever could. Sina, do you want to come in on this? Uh, I forget what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't we talk really? about sports, guys? Isn't this we're podcast about, to, about sports? We can go off brand sometimes. Whatever. We can do what we want. <laughs> um, I'll transition to sports now. That's my, I have a follow up question about sports. Um, <laughs> all right, here we go. Well, okay. You know, we've been talking for well over an hour, and we haven't been talking about sports at all yet. Um, <laughs> you know, that's fine, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so we gotta, you know, sports is situated within a broader context. I get Thirty and... minutes of homework for this podcast to catch up on to catch up on sports news. All right, we're gonna we're gonna let you we're gonna let you use that material. <laughs> Here, like, let's let's stay in the media for a minute because this is a, this is at least an issue for me. I don't know how many other people care as much as I do about this, but. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, Max was talking about um, 
the significance of left media, alternative modes of media in making a kind of political intervention and how that has everything to do with its, um, you know, how much it's driven by capitalist imperatives or not. But what I want to know is, isn't there a place for sports in that alternative media? And one thing that's the thing that's I think has kind of bothered me is that you know there are all these outlets that and Max listed them and I, and I would I would make the same kind of list, but you almost never see coverage of sport in those contexts. Even though you know I would think it's a pretty easy argument to make that sport is the most popular form of culture in the United States. Uh, it is what so many of these voters, if you want to think in that electoral frame, but obviously we don't have to, are thinking about. But yet these outlets really aren't talking about sport and they're not using sport as a way in to, I think, a, a, a market. I, we shouldn't use the word, I shouldn't use the word market. I mean, like, it's really a way of organizing, right, through the media to, to grab people on a topic that they care about, that they're interested in, and it open them up to a larger conversation. Is there a place for sports in the independent media? Or is it just like, we, we, we also talked to Hamilton Nolan and he sort of suggested at the time, listen, the problem is just that there's, there's so few resources at these outlets. There are so few opportunities for discussion. Um, there's just not time in a sense to talk about sports. And I don't know, I don't know if you agree with that. And I don't know if that's ultimately the best analysis for these outlets to have if they really mean to make a political intervention. Um, I can go first. I... I think I think that all the institutions of media and kind of culture making and the kind of the we I, to use kind of um, Frankfurt School language. Sorry, it's pretentious. I'm sorry, I can't help it. But uh, we're among we're among the initiated here, so I don't have to apologize to you people, but to you out there in listener land, I'm sorry to do this. But sports is a huge pillar of the sort of global culture, uh, sort of culture industry. What could be called culture industry? Right, which is, um, which is basically comes down to the economy of eyeballs, right? Like the goal is to get eyeballs onto your product, which is no sort of fundamentally different than a lot of other texts, right? Like what we do here too is like the goal is at least in our case ears, uh, but it's it's to it's to have consumption of our of our media. I think in in some ways that like COVID has exposed. That, that this underlying thing, which is at the sense of togetherness that sports allows us to have, that kind of fictional togetherness, like that, I mean, that obviously you guys in the show have talked way more about this, blah, 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 imagine community, all that stuff. But like something even like local, like, like, like the vicissitudes of our violent sort of like class oriented society in which commodities and commodity relations reign above everything else like this is our only god is like the is like you know the amazon sort of catalog like that's when 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 that when you lose that kind of i mean this is a weird argument to make and i can't believe i'm making this argument but like when the world is disenchanted like you have to replace it with something and like my sports fandom and this is me speaking personally was absolutely 100% religious in a sense like it was had all the facets of religion. And that's not to cheapen what, and, and I don't mean to cheapen what people do with religion because sometimes religion makes you do really intense things like whip yourself and also die and like do serious things. So I'm not being, I don't mean to cheapen it, but in the sense that like it was a faith, 
And it was an institution for me to sort of seek refuge in for upwards of half a decade. Like I was a good, I was a baseball fanatic, fanatic, legit fanatic from about 2013 to the last couple of years. Like, and we're talking like all, like all of my research prowess that I learned from grad school. It's like, I was like the Ubermensch, like nerd reader, like, like extraordinaire of a certain mode of baseball media that was like geared towards people with my level of our level of education, in fact. Right. And like so much of that. So it was, I was like mainlining baseball. Like right now I'm sitting in front of three screens. Okay. I know it's a little, it's a little excessive, but like part of that has to do with like, I used to watch, I used to have like two baseball games on at any given time, like for like three, four years. Okay. So like, like teams that I wouldn't watch, like, Hey, what are the Reds up to? Like, like, you know, like for a while I would like, I would know this is so, I can't believe I'm admitting this. This is so bad. I like subscribed to like baseball America magazine for a while too. Like I was reading about like, that's the lowest, that's like NASCAR low to like be reading about like college baseball. Like that, you that's like, that, that's like more people do Frankfurt school than they do like read that stuff. And all of them are employed in baseball. Like they're getting paid to do it. They're not doing it for free and they're certainly not paying to do it like I was. But that was my lowest or highest. I don't know. But essentially it was something that I dedicated myself to in lieu of engaging the world. And I'm not saying that's what everybody does, but for a while I just disengaged. And I, I didn't look at the world. And especially now compared to like my job now, and I have to pay attention. It's part of my work as podcaster, editor and stuff. Like I got to follow the news. Like I got to do an episode on, on Bahrain. Like the PM just died, you know, like you got to do that stuff because that's just the job now. Um, so, but, but I think part of it is that like, to go back to the original question, but like, like are the institutions of late capitalism are failing. Like they are failing. They all rested. They were all high flying enterprises that were hugely overvalued, right? Because there's something like neo, like late capitalism has this thing called branding, right? So like the Dodgers are the most like hyper valued sports franchise in, in, I think, I think one of the most, like, I think of one of the top ones, top 10, I don't know. In terms of global recognition, they're up there with like, I don't know what else, Yankees and, couple some some probably some some football leagues some like english european football probably you guys know better than me but essentially it's a big deal the dodgers just won their first world series in 30 years and like they had to do it of course like on zoom which is funny to me but also like 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 the whole scandal of like the cheating scandal from last year the last few years the juice to ball all of the scumbaggery of like manfred and stuff all of that resulted in me not giving a shit. I didn't even watch. I watched one game. I tweeted about it once, and actually Nate yelled at me for watching the game. I was like, Nate's right. I shouldn't do it. Okay, you ruined you ruined baseball. But but uh, but it's fine. I, I, it was gross too. It's so unwholesome. Who what, what what is this weird fucking playing in front of nobody? Like it's just like it's like I don't know. It's just wrong. <laughs> It felt wrong. It was stupid. They shouldn't have done it. But but anyways, that's a that's a long way of getting into it. Is that like I, I think there is I don't know I don't, these it's hard to imagine sports 
without greedy, money-grubbing, like, scumbag billionaires. Because they have their fucking hooks in it. Because it's, like, one of their favorite things to do. So, you know, both as an outlet and also, like, as a business. So, because it's, it's usually really lucrative. It's usually funded by the fucking state, you know, um, or in some sort of ghoulish way. And it's usually a prestige thing or whatever. Like, so, so it's hard to imagine it in, you know, in our, in our, you know, our coming Mad Max future. It's hard to imagine sports. Like, it might be the Thunderdome, guys. Like, it might be like, we might be back. We might be back to watching people be murdered. Uh, I, I, that's a dark thing to say. I think, and I, I think you're just describing college football. So you know, um, <laughs> well, that's the other thing is of doing it, yeah, or doing it slowly, right? I mean, that was always the case. But yeah, that's my rant about sports. One hour and twenty minutes into the podcast, <laughs> we approach for sports. Well, I mean, and and you know, I think that um, you know, I, I I kind of addressed, um, I, I expressed a lot of my feelings the the first time that I was on this this show, right? Is um, when it was when I was on with my man Ryan Boyd, right? It's like. You know, I think we we both kind of express sentiments that you know are similar to what Cena just uh, expressed, right? It's like I I do think that the left um, you know needs to make space for sports and needs to think kind of more critically about sports, not just in like kind of pearl clutching culture industry terms, but actually in the broader like you know uh, spectrum of you know people playing sports of of the joy and pleasure that you get from you know being physically active of the skills that you develop and the sense of self-worth that you develop right when you're playing on a team when you achieve a common goal when you push your body to kind of limits that you didn't pass limits you you didn't know you could push past right that's something incredibly valuable it's an incredibly um you know important uh you know and joyful and and pedagogical kind of experience that frankly we would be you know really really ridiculous and stupid to kind of ignore and to pretend like you know that it's 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 only because of like the the billionaires and the and the kind of capitalists who have like you know made such a gross and and um you know sacrificial spectacle out of um you know our all the kind of mainstream and major league sports right you know like there there's a lot of other stuff there as as you guys have covered brilliantly on this podcast like there's so much more to sport that you know we need to kind of we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of in most corners of the left. And, and I think that there are a lot of, you know, problems with that, not only because we are closing ourselves off to a vital aspect of the human experience, uh, but also to kind of like vital pathways to connecting with other people outside of our respective echo chambers, right. To, to building those sorts of pathways of common experience and, and solidarity and, and, and all that good stuff with, you know, other people, right. I've met people I never would have met otherwise playing pickup basketball right and now that i don't have that after i blew out my knee i miss it i'm not the same person without basketball i'm just not and i and i really do lament the loss of basketball and and the loss of football right all the kind of sports that i played religiously throughout my life that suddenly came to a crashing halt when i tore my acl mcl and meniscus all in one go right and you know, like, but on, but on top of that, you know, because I, like I said, I, I kind of talked more extensively about that in the episode with, with uh, Ryan Boyd. So I don't want to kind of um, 
force listeners who already listened to that to kind of re-listen to the same thing that I was talking about. But, um, you know, I think that Hamilton is, is absolutely right that like, as far as like one of the obvious drawbacks of being, uh, in a non-capitalist media space is that you don't have as much money. Right. So like, so yeah, like the, the, we, we are all, you know, kind of, uh, operating at limited capacity. Um, and you know, when, when there's so much news to cover, when, when we're kind of fighting such an uphill battle to kind of against like mainstream media narratives, you have to kind of pick your battles, right? You know, like, like what Cena is doing with kind of the, the ways that we talk about American quote unquote foreign policy, right? I think he could tell you that that's not an easy job, right? You know, there's a lot of shit to combat, right? There are a lot of, a lot of narratives to kind of unwind for people, right? The same goes for what y'all are doing here with sports, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, you've covered so much and yet there's still so much left to cover, right? And so, you know, when you're talking about kind of making space in left media for kind of substantive uh, analyses of that, I think it is something we need to do, but it's also something that we need to, you know, kind of like invest in, right? We, we, we need to kind of find ways to get people to buy into it and, and see the value in it. And I think that a lot of that stems from how we approach the very question of sports itself and how we incorporate, um, sports and, 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 sports analogies right and experiences in the world of sport how we bring that into our other realms of debate right and discussion right how we allow it to cross pollinate with the other aspects of our discourse right and this is this is like something that you know i've been thinking about a lot and and i guess this is not not entirely answering the question about what to do with sports because there's still i still have the same reservations that i had you know the last time i was on the show right like I, I would be like Cena admitting that, you know, like how, that he's a baseball fanatic. I, I would be lying if I told you guys that, like, I have kept more sane throughout this pandemic because the NFL is back. Right. Because I have uh, fantasy football to play with my friends who I haven't seen in years. Right. It is a social thing for me. It is a it is a source of regularity for me. And I just love the sport. Right. You know, like and I, I sit uncomfortably with that, knowing the risks that players are taking, seeing all the injuries this season, which are like off the fucking charts, which like as a fantasy player, you know, is like is uh, you notice a lot more when you're like, well, shit, half my roster is just injured then you start to think she's like jesus why are so many people getting injured like well because they didn't have a preseason because their bodies like because of the physical toll that the sport takes on their bodies if you're not kind of as prepared as you possibly can be for that you're gonna get all these injuries that we've had throughout the nfl season um and you know we as fans you know like have to really kind of reckon with that and ask the question that you know joanna and nathan um or you know and and this show in general are kind of always asking right which is like is it worth it right is there a way to save it or you know like how how do we kind of come to terms with this or actually kind of uh, alleviate you know the kind of pain that that we are asking professional athletes to inflict upon themselves for our entertainment right so like I guess that's the kind of closest I can get to kind of answering the the direct sports question but to kind of quickly jump back to my point um you know and I guess it'll probably be my 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 rounding uh I'm rounding out um, uh, cause I know I'm talked to everyone's ear off, but like about like kind of using sports, 
necessarily as like a pathway into kind of other areas of debate in 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 other realms of uh, human connection that we can be making with our fellow workers and and you know our neighbors, right? There are so many ways that we can take the common experiences and and really passionate kind of investments that you know so many people have in sports and in playing sports and in watching sports, right? If we could use that like in uh, other areas of our political analysis, I think that could be really fruitful, right? And one of the things that I keep thinking about, I guess, to go back to the episode that I was talking about of working people with, uh, with Hamilton Nolan, right. Is we kind of, we kind of talked about this in terms of like the Trump phenomenon. Right. And I think that we're actually seeing it play out now with, with the Biden stuff, right? Like in the immediate aftermath of the election, what did you see? You saw, you saw this kind of moment that I know liberals have been waiting for, for four years, which is the pictures of people in Trump hats, people in uh, American flags, like draped over themselves, crying on the street, right? Just in disbelief, in pain, right? People took so much kind of affective, like, you know, uh, (laughs) like they got got so much affective pleasure from that and they got so much joy from that right and that's not to say that that joy was not in largely uh, unfounded right i mean there's there are a lot of reasons that um that we can have for feeling uh as joanna mentioned joy and and relief that like you know trump has been voted out of office but what i'm kind of thinking about is something entirely different right it goes back to the people uh, who are behind the Trumpist movement, not Trump himself, right? The people who are in these photos, just like the photos of, uh, you know, Eagles fans whose hearts were broken, you know, in this or that, you know, uh, Super Bowl or playoff game, right? The sports fan who has his head hanging in the stands after everyone has left because he still can't reckon with the loss that he just experienced, right? There is a very fan-like um, element that, you know, like has dominated the way that all of us kind of average citizens, like uh, the ways that we approach politics, right? Because, you know, what, what we discussed in that episode with me and Hamilton Nolan is that when you have let capitalism run so rampant for so long, and when the political establishment has concentrated power and wealth in the hands of so few, and when working people have so little in this goddamn world, right, and so little political agency when it comes to kind of like the, the you know, quote-unquote democratic institutions that govern the, the American state, when we we have so little power to actually influence that uh, through kind of the official channels of voting and writing letters to our senators, right? The thing that we are left with is fandom. The power uh, that fandom brings, the the affective power that it gives us, the illusion of power that it gives us over other people. That's what I saw like over this past week, just like I saw it in the immediate aftermath of Trump's election. Right. I saw people who, you know, were not so much taking pleasure in Trump leaving, but they were taking pleasure in having this kind of cultural power over people who supported Trump. Right. This sense that like like fans, when you beat your opponent. Right. And you can rub it in their faces like there is something there's connective tissue there between what happens in sports, what sports concentrates so well and what is happening in our kind of political arena. And the reason that I, I emphasize it so much is be, is not because it's like, you know, 
good or bad on its own. I think that that's kind of just in large part, that's the nature of the way politics works in this goddamn country um, and in a lot of other countries. Right. I mean, like it, it is a kind of. Uh, it is a political factor that we just kind of have to reckon with. But the point that I want to kind of leave listeners with is that the less power that people have in the kind of, you know, political realm, in the economic realm, the more enticing that cultural power becomes, right? The more attractive it is to engage in uh, electoral politics because it's going to give you that sense of cultural superiority uh, when the political estab- when that's all the political establishment is really going to offer you because it's not going to offer you substantive power in the um, kind of political realm or the economic realm. And I think that that's something that sports gives us a particularly like good way to good, like analytic, right. To kind of understand our political moment. Yeah. That, that actually really intersects with something I've been thinking about Max recently, which is that, and, and, you know, um, we were just talking about the sort of imagined community idea earlier. And, you know, so I typically think of sports fandom in that way that, right. That it provides, you're both kind of covering this, that sports fandom provides this affective thing that actually deals with exactly the phenomenon you were talking about. These material conditions, the, the deprivations of capitalist life. That is one of the things that drives people to sport is this a source of meaning. It's a source of relief in that context, but yet, as we've been sort of discussing throughout this this episode, we now see the, the, the spectacularization of politics and electoral politics has a very similar effect. It's like we have these two teams and these two teams are competing in front of each other every day on CNN and Fox News and whatever else. And people start to invest their identities um, and look for meaning in that in exactly the same sort of way that it kind of happens in sports, right? There's this way. So then Biden, even though, as we've been saying throughout, right, like there's no there there when it comes to Biden. And yet Biden can become the repository of so much meaning for people, so much hope that this is somehow going to like save the nation or save their lives. Um, when, you know, both of those things may be complete um, mystifications, really. But what all of this had me thinking about was like, what does that actually do when those two things come together? Because you literally have people who have deep investments in like baseball, like Cena was talking about, right? Like who read their baseball America and really care about the Dodgers. Like the Dodgers, it's not a joke. It's religious, as you said, Cena. Like the Dodgers mean something profound in that fan's life. So they go to the game or right, right now they can't. But I mean, like we can imagine them perhaps one day again, being able to go to a game and sitting beside someone who's supposed to be someone they're fundamentally connected to. And this is like, this is the imagined community because it's, it's bullshit. Like it's imagined um, what really connects them. They're wearing the same Jersey, but like, is there anything more to that? Not necessarily, but there's still this affective connection that's produced and they can high five each other and like share in the chance and feel like they're part of something. And that actually does something meaningful in their lives. It makes them feel collective, a part of a collective, even though capitalism is so fundamentally alienating and isolating. Right. But then what happens when that person that they're sitting beside who's wearing that same jersey and they're supposed to be connecting to, that person's a Republican, that person's a Trumpist, that person's a MAGA fan, and right, like you're a big, you're a big Biden stan. 
how do you reconcile that now in this moment? That like that's actually not a problem when people don't care that much about politics. When politics seems like this kind of abstraction or someone else's business, and nothing's going to change. But now that we have this fandom imbuing itself into politics and the spectacularization of politics as a kind of fandom and as a sporting event, I actually think that's more of a conflict of identity because like in the same way that the Dodgers fan actually does in a really perverse way, hate the fan of another team. They also definitely also hate that Trumpist, right? So can they be in the same imagined community as this person who is this total political opponent? But the political opponent, again, like that, that means more now, maybe in this moment. Like that's what we're seeing on Twitter. And like, that's what Fox News is doing. That's why people like what people want to take up arms to defend this monstrous human being, Trump. It obviously isn't because Trump isn't such a great guy. It's because they are imagining themselves in this collectivity. And it's a white supremacist collectivity in many ways. I'm not dismissing that. But like in some way or another, they are part of something so profound that like Benedict Anderson says, as he writes about imagined communities, they will willingly die for such limited imaginings. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about then in the context of politics. We're seeing that right now. But that's also what happens in sports, where they're willing to sacrifice the players to die to those limited imaginings. I don't know. I, I, I'm actually kind of throwing this out. Like, and obviously, like we've been going at this for a long time. We've got to wrap up. But like, I don't know what to do with that in this moment. I don't know if that changes the dynamics of fandom. Sounds like we got a part two coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it has been a real pleasure to talk. Um, and it's, you know, it's an off-brand show for us, but it was an on-brand show for uh, what I've been thinking about these days. So Sina and Max, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having us on y'all and, and apologies if we talk too much, but, uh, this, as always, I love the show, love what you guys are doing and really appreciate the thoughtful questions. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or check out our website at www.endofsport.com, where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more. <laughs>